Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today writes about everything, or at least it can feel that way. In addition to novels, he's published books about jazz, photography, travel, World War I, D.H. Lawrence, an aircraft carrier, and the movie Where Eagles Dare. His latest book, The Last Days of Roger Federer, is partly about tennis, but also Bob Dylan, Nietzsche, Turner, John Coltrane, Philip Larkin, Beethoven, and psychedelic drugs. Confusingly, for a book which deals with decline, is extremely good. Thanks for joining me, Jeff Dyer. Thank you. Great pleasure. Where are you right now? Oh, I'm in London at the moment. Yeah, I got here last week. But most of the time in, is it Venice, California? Uh, yeah, I'm in Venice Beach in California. And uh, what else to say? I'm, uh, yeah, I'm very happy to, to be here, though, for the moment. The Last Days of Roger Federer says a lot about tennis, but not as much, I think, as a curious tennis fan might expect from the title. Was that always intended to be the title and the focus for the book? Or did you sort of rifle through a few options? It was always going to be a book about much more than tennis, but the title came to me quite early on, and I liked it very much because I I thought it expressed in miniature the larger concerns of the book. And then also, I think this is probably not uncommon, you know, it was written during the COVID crisis, and during the various lockdowns, my wife and I amused ourselves in the, the long, eventless evenings of designing a sort of possible book cover for it, which was, of course, rejected by the publisher. <laughs> but they, uh, they, yeah, I liked the idea of showing a detail of a De Chirico painting mm. in the book. But even though they didn't go with that, both the US and the UK editions, the lovely photograph they use, really makes very clear that uh, if you buy this book, you're not going to get your money back because you thought it was going to be a book about tennis because uh, it, it's so clearly not just a it's not a, a roger biography no no and I was, I was reading a few of your old interviews there's one in 2009 where you said i fear i'm in the process of missing the boat the moment when i could have written a book about tennis mm. what what changed how did tennis make a comeback well yeah it, i mean that's what i should make this clear this is certainly not a very belated attempt <laughs> to make on that no. earlier earlier failure but i think you know what i would say is that most of what i think it's worth saying about that that I have that's worth saying about tennis has been either said in this book or in the various bits and pieces I've written about but I think that was correct I think I did miss the boat for the the tennis book as such but as you know it didn't matter because I always wanted to keep my publishers happy so they were absolutely delighted when instead of the tennis book I handed in that book about Tarkovsky (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I did wonder. One thing I've always wondered in reading your stuff is, like, having written book proposals myself, is how you write that in a proposal. And then I read in one interview that you actually don't do proposals. Yeah, I mean, I'll just, yeah, this is, I think this is a, an interesting thing to pursue. So I really don't do p- p- proposals and I don't get contracts for books. But in the case of that, but going back to 2009 or whenever it was when I made this uh transfer to uh, from my previous publisher to Canongate, you know, like an aging footballer who's being transferred for a sort of record-breaking fee, they were wondering, you know, how many seasons did I have left in me? So, you know, there was the novel that, I, that I'd sold them. I wrote the novel and they, they bought that. They said, you know, what might you do next? And I said, oh, I've got this idea of writing a book about tennis, which they really liked the idea of, partly because I played tennis with the guy who runs Canongate, Jamie Bing, the publisher. So instead of just the novel, I said I'd do the tennis book as well. 
And I didn't need to draw up a proposal, which is good because I'm incapable of doing such things. And then to cut this part of the story short, when it came to it, I realized I had no desire to write a book about tennis. And one of the reasons I had no desire to do so is, I think, because at that point, although I'd not done a proposal, I was contractually obliged to deliver that. So my sense of despair that I wasn't able to write the book was intensified by the fact that I knew I was meant to. <laughs> so there's that that's a sort of specific detail. But more generally, of course, nonfiction books tend to be the product of a proposal, which is then accepted by a, by a publisher. And in the case of certain books, if, you're gonna, if it's going to be a research-based book that's going to involve five years of research and writing, all this kind of stuff, then you know a, a proposal is a necessary part of it. But for me, a proposal is the, the kiss of death, really. I mean, I've got no ability to write them. And I think it would be a very, very boring thing to write. And the nice thing about proceeding as I do, which is as novelists typically proceed, whereby you you know you just write the book and then you sell it. The nice thing is there's no uncertainty on the part of the publisher. They know exactly what they're getting because they're reading the whole book. And also, it means it frees me, I think, to write. You know, I always write this encouraging note to myself when I'm writing a book. You know, remember write the book that only you could write. And I think one of the things about book proposals is that what happens is that a given book can often be written by anyone. What's changing is the area of expertise. Whereas it seems to me what I am what I tend to offer is a highly individualized thing. And not only is it a highly individualized thing, quite often it's a thing which in summary or as a proposal, would be deemed unpublishable. And one of the things I like about my, one of the ways in which I would claim boastfully I'm successful as a writer is in my record of being consistently able to publish the unpublishable. That's why I go about things in this way, to the extent that actually even with writing for papers, when you're just starting off, you know, they say, well, we can't commission you, just send it in on spec. And actually, you know, all these years later, you know, here I am 64 now, I, most of the stuff I publish in papers, I, I just send in on spec, you know, um, that's just, it's just a way of proceeding that suits me is my, is the, uh, my final part of this lengthy answer. Well, one thing I find inspiring is your confidence about following your curiosity and, and sort of establishing your own authority on all kinds of subjects. Have you ever had imposter syndrome like like who am i to sort of hold forth on you know <laughs> this particular topic that's a, that's a very nice question and the answer not so much imposter syndrome but i can remember very clearly very early on when i published my first novel which was pretty much a flop i should add and at that point in my life i was so passionate about jazz and i used to have these things I'd be lying in uh, lying in the bath, that sort of breeding ground for megalomania, and I'd think, oh my god, I you know I could write a great book about jazz, uh, and then I'd get out of the steamy bath, you know, feeling all tired as you do, and reflect, oh, what was I thinking of? Anyway, I mean, what happened is that I did end up writing a book about jazz, and 
the reason that book, that's the book, but beautiful, the reason the book has the form and the structure and the uh, sort of conceptual heart that it does is precisely because I was, I knew I was unable to write a more orthodox book. So actually what I found is that the sense of my being unqualified or not ideally qualified to write about a a given subject has actually been quite enabling for me. There's a line uh, in this book which I thought seemed to sort of perhaps explain quite a lot of your books where you say the obstacle became the path. Yes. Do you know, when, as I was formulating that last answer, I was dimly trying to recall exactly that line. So thank you, Dorian, for having a better memory than me. And yes, I mean, that, that's, yeah, that goes to the heart of many of the sort of books I've written. And yeah, it's this idea that, you know, always, yeah, you know, remember, you know, write the book only you could write is the, is the, the kind of mantra that I keep uh, repeating to myself during moments of, of insecurity let's say well you, you don't usually write introductions you know it's telling readers what kind of book they're reading where it's going and i think kind of fans of yours will will expect that by now and in, enjoy that sort of i suppose mm. sense of discovery was that harder sort of earlier on in in your career because your career makes to me makes a lot of sense now <laughs> and yet perhaps at the beginning it might have been harder to explain to people what you were about yeah, yeah. And I think the jazz book, if I remember rightly, it has quite a lot of sort of prefatory material. There's a note on photographs, a little introduction, all this kind of stuff, uh, where I'm trying to, oh, trying to sort of cozy the reader along into this, uh, into what turned out to be a quite unusual reading experience. But increasingly, and you're, you're right about this again, Dorian, that I like the idea of a book that has no introduction, obviously the lowest form of book, in many respects, is the academic book where there's an introduction saying what you're going to do. And then, you know, then you go through saying in chapter one, I'm going to do this. And in chapter two, I do Mm. that. And, you know, it's the absolute kiss of death. It's just, it's completely annihilating. So at the other extreme, as a book, you know, like this one of mine, where you get no introduction, you get no sense of what this book is going to be like, how it's going to work. And hopefully, if you're able to engage the reader's interest, curiosity, and ideally affection, people will go on reading it. And, you know, my books aren't thrillers, of course, but I think there is maybe an element of suspense, not perhaps a, a who done it, but a sense of what is it. And one of the things is the reader is hopefully asking themselves, you know, what kind of book is this? How does it want to be read? What's going to happen to make it cohere? And I guess that can go two ways. You can decide, oh my God, this is just uh, this seems this seems rather uh, chaotic. But if you can engage the reader's faith for long enough uh, until that there is this sense of the book's uh, concerns, shape, structure, and so forth becoming apparent, I rather like that that little note at the beginning of In the Skin of a Lion by Michael Ondaatje, when there's a little sort of thing and it says the first line of every novel should be, trust me, there is order here, but very faint. And uh, I've, I've enjoyed really <laughs> moving that over into the realm of, uh, of, of nonfiction. Well, apparently this book has 86,400 words, which is one for every yeah. second in a day. <laughs> Which seems to sum up to me, is perhaps your goal, the surface impression of looseness and digression 
secretly underpinned by this kind of intense structural rigor. Yes. I mean, it's one of the things, I, I know it's a very low form of uh, complaint, you know, writers should never complain about what people say of them. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I can remember that, that two of my earlier books, The Missing of the Somme and the photography book, the first photography book, The Ongoing Moment, both of those people said it was they were unstructured. And if we go back to those, then of course it's incredibly easy to write a book about the First World War if you begin with, you know, chapter one, recruitment, chapter two, the you know, the the front, and then chapter four or whatever, you know, the quagmire. Or you could do a book about photography and it's, you know, either a chronological survey or you could do it by different kinds of uh, photography. So that's all straightforward. But I think it's much more interesting to try to evolve a form which is uniquely appropriate to the subject and also one which reveals itself gradually. So, I mean, you're absolutely right that there's 86,400 words in the book. I mean, that's only that's only revealed right at the end in the postscript, although that postscript does refer back to a section very early on in the book when I'm talking about Nietzsche's idea of the eternal recurrence and the way that maybe the best filmic representation of that idea is Christian Markley's 24-hour film, The Clock. And I talk about the way that that, uh, that film lasts for 24 hours, i.e. 86,400 seconds. And then, you know, you wait about 250 pages until it's revealed, as you, as you very correctly point out, that the, the book has exactly the same number of words as there are seconds in the day. But this was, this was an idea that arose out of the material, not something that I'd imposed on it as some kind of uh, right, rather right. arbitrary formal concern before I'd even got going with the, the, the book. About when you started, I know that you're, you know, you're rather unhappy with your your first book, which I thought was was too conventional. But you know, when you're in the in the early '90s and this kind of run of books like the, the, the Psalm and But Beautiful and so on, did you have many positive inspirations out there, or was it more a case of negative influences, like that you just looked at academic stuff and went, not not that? Mm. Well, it's um, do you know, I think one of the the yeah, I mean, by then, I think by the ninth, I mean, I'd really become uh, as a reader, I'd become sort of so impatient with a- academic books, and I could often just about get through them if I was purely mining for information. This kind of thing, you know, as a as a source source of uh, just the sort of the data that I needed. And you know, there were a number of people doing things that I was very very interested in. The most important of whom was, of course, uh, John Berger. But I think for me, in terms of my personally sort of developing this way of this very personal sort of free way of writing. I think we have this idea that uh, what can happen is this, that you can achieve a certain measure of financial success and critical success in a genre. And then at some point, you can then abandon that and sort of do your own thing, if you like, because you've, uh, you've, you've gained this autonomy. I think it tends not to work that way because people become addicted to the success of their uh, of, of of a particular way of writing so i've always felt that for me i mean the 
the kind of successive failures of the individual books meant that it was a very, very low risk, low scale thing to go off and to go and do something else, which was potentially equally commercially unappealing. So I don't know whether this was a way of just trying to rationalize and make good on what from the outside would have would have seemed a, a series of failures. But uh, it's, uh, I can see that it was a, it was, you know, it was such a low stakes game for everything, everyone concerned, that publishers were always quite happy to go along with it. Whereas if I'd followed up a kind of quarter of a million selling uh, novel with a, a rather strange little book about my reflections on the First World War, they might, there might have been some, some hesitation. As it was, the truth is what I did next didn't make a, uh, nobody, it didn't make a, you know, nobody gave a rat's ass really, which was rather, rather convenient for me. Yes, you escaped the curse of uh, <laughs> massive success. Uh, yes, avoided the pitfalls of catastrophic early success. <laughs> Um, these days, it seems like the line between fiction and nonfiction has been has been so thoroughly trampled, whether by autofiction or writers like Eric Vuriard and Benjamin Labatut, who who write these sort of novel. They call them novels, but it's so firmly based in nonfiction. It reminds me more of something like you know, but beautiful. Do you feel yeah. like you have a lot more company now? Yes, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I, I really do. And I think in some weird way, whereas it seems to me I was sort of suffering from being this kind of weird voice in the wilderness, then when the number of, uh, other, of other people doing this kind of thing increased, then it sort of, uh, it, sort of uh, it helped me along because I became part of a, a kind of, oh, I don't know what to call it, a, let's say a movement, even though it, isn't, it wasn't quite quite that and you know uh, uh back in the in the 90s when i really you know when this kind of thing wasn't so popular i think there was this you know that i've told this story many times about how but beautiful got sort of bounced around the different sections of the the bookstores mm. until it you know and uh, but now there's uh, there's this whole you can go into a, a bookstore and there's a, a perfectly respectable section of books that don't fit into any particular section there's a lot of it about and of course as you would expect some of this genre defying stuff now feels ra- a rather comfortable genre uh, in itself and has you can i think we can all think of examples where it's become rather rather formulaic and of course it's something which is very popular in terms of, at the sort of uh, places like you know american universities at one of which mm. i teach of course yeah so you like the velvet underground basically it's like oh, didn't sell um, a lot of copies at the time but then eventually people came around yeah, so good. I'm always flattered by any kind of comparison with any kind of rock band. So yeah, yeah, I think there is a, right. an element of that. But also, I shouldn't be too arrogant because whenever you think you're doing something wildly original, then it always turns out that a uh, particular thing you're doing has a lengthy prehistory. So yeah, John Berger had been, you know, yeah. writing very uh, difficult to categorize books before. And then also there's Milan Kundera, whose novels, of course, I liked, but his nonfiction books such as Testament Betrayed, you know, mm-hmm. they were they were also a great sense of inspiration for me, especially as I found that I'd got increasingly weary of the of the sort of more traditional novel elements of Kundera's books and what I valued were the essayistic bits so I was very happy when he 
did a book like Testaments Betrayed, which was you know an, an, a book of essays in the form of variations, not claiming to be a novel in the form of variations. Yeah, that always felt like a very European thing to me, that you had this sort of license on the continent to do this. Yes, uh, uh, I agree. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you, and you write in this book about tones of writing that you dislike, including the Grand and the Ponzi. Um, do you think you're immune to that? Or do you sometimes write a sentence in a draft that makes you think, oh, no, that that is inside me. I can sound rather lofty. No, I don't think I sound lofty or grand. But I mean, well, I mean, in a sense, it's I'm the not the person to to ask. But I am aware that uh, I mean, it's not an original psychological point. But I'm very conscious that uh, in order to be that in order to be that self-deprecation does require a level uh, a freedom from a certain kind of insecurity. Let's say, but uh, no, I don't. I don't think that that I don't. I don't think. A tone of being grand is of is of much help, but equally, I don't want to be stuck, you know, marooned in some kind of just Liam Gallagher type type idiom, because then, of course, there's all sorts of nuances and sensitivity mm. and responsiveness to the world which would be uh, which would be denied you. But uh, I mean, really, I mean, as you as you know, my books are full of brilliant quotations from other people. I feel I'm allowed to say that. And one of the unattributed quotations in this book, unattributed until the end, is a line which means so much for, for uh, to me, that line from a Don Patterson poem when he says, now let's raise the fucking tone, which I feel <laughs> is so getting to the heart of one of the things that I'm up to in this book. I think you also seem very confident in your tastes. And there's a, the Q&A, which I'm sure you've seen, you've probably done this, in The Guardian where people ask which novel they feel guilty about not having read and they get all red-faced about Ulysses or Moby Dick. Um, it's always Ulysses or Moby Dick. But in here, you, 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 know, you talk about all these sort of classic novels that you've merrily given up on. Does that come with age and just thinking, do you know what, this isn't going to happen now? Like were you, when you're younger, do you feel a little bit more like it's a, it's a you problem rather than a... Dostoevsky problem. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, I'm kind of resigned to it, but it's not without regret. Uh, I really wish I had read The Brothers Karamazov, let's say, back when I had the stamina to do so, back in the days when, you know, I read The Whole of the Idiot by Dostoevsky, even though I hated pretty much, I derived no pleasure from, I don't know, from all, but sort of, I, I, I enjoyed about three pages of it. But back then, you have such a faith that in the you know that each, with each book you read, you're going to be drawn closer to some sort of state of enlightenment that you persist with things. And you know now I don't have that. I just don't have the chops. I don't have the the sort of resilience that I that I once had. So there is uh, there is a tone of regret really because I do feel that probably for me that I probably will go to my grave now without having read. The brothers Karamazov, but then there's other things that still that continue to niggle. So, you know, if, you know, one really doesn't want to go to one's grave without having read Proust. But I'm conscious of uh, multiple failed attempts that have preceded the the, the previous, the, the, sorry, the most recent failure. Yeah, yeah. You're also brutally unsentimental about um, late work by writers uh, you used to love like certain novels from Don DeLillo or, or Martin Amos. Oh, yeah. Is it no, no fear there of, a, of an awkward 
awkward encounter at a at a book festival? Oh well, of, of, yeah. There's, I mean, of course, one doesn't want to, you know, one doesn't want to go somewhere and end up getting headbutted by somebody. Of course, that's awful. But I guess what I should say, this book is not um, a considered critical mm. survey. Much more about preserving my reactions to to things. I actually think that you know the Mar- the most recent Martin Amis book was was pretty amazing in many ways. Inside Story, yeah. But I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I thought Yellow Dog and Lionel Asbo were were pretty terrible. But you know, I and the same with uh, you know uh, Don DeLillo's uh, Cosmopolis. But I guess in both those cases, I mean, there you're measuring the de- the 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 lap. The, the decline in quality against an incredibly high starting point of the books that have preceded them. And, you know, these are people that mean so much to me in my sort of uh, sort of personal, I guess, canon's not the, the, the right word. But, yeah, it's a, it's a reflection of how much they mean to me. And, of course, I think there's a redeeming quality here that if I talk about the way that DeLillo fell prey to self-karaoke, I think, in Cosmopolis, an affliction that is almost guaranteed to afflict any distinct stylist. Anyway, as I was writing about people getting into their twilight years, I was very, very, very conscious that it's possible that everything I was saying about uh, uh, this aspect of their writing, it could turn out that I wasn't just looking at the book (laughs) But I was accidentally seeing my own co- talking about the what I what, the, the book that I was talking about was actually a mirror reflecting back yeah. um, something about myself which might be obvious to the reader, but to which I am mercifully and necessarily uh, oblivious. There's a really nice uh, Orwell line which they're going to mangle about H.G. Wells when he's just basically shredded the last thirty years of H.G. Wells's life and said, well, you know, he's not great anymore, but how many people are great in the first place? <laughs> yeah. So I always think, I always think that's a, there's a compliment buried in the trashing of later work, I think, because, you you know, yeah. yes, yeah. disappointed and, for a reason. Yeah, and it's, you know, I mean, Hemingway is a, such a, you know, I always think of that bit that I mentioned in the book where he writes to his editor, I can't remember which book he's writing, he's in his 50s, I think, and he says, I'm writing again like a 25-year-old, and I'm writing God knows how many thousand words a, a day and yeah he's got you know he's managing to bang out the words but actually banging out the words is a way of denying refusing to see what is you know what became obvious to everybody when the book was published which is that there was a terrible decline not in the quantity of words but in the in but but in their in their in their quality yeah do you have a kind of reader in mind when you write or, or as uh, indie musicians always say they're right for themselves they're doing it for themselves and if anybody else likes it it's a bonus yes the the, the latter i have really <laughs> um you know i've never I, I've, we go back to that point i've made earlier that you know i think i've managed to turn the lack of a readership into some sort of uh freedom and you know yeah i don't have any the any eye on the market or anything like that but i do have an eye on is trying to make the the book as good as possible from my from my own peculiar uh, point of view and i guess also one is i mean this book i was writing it very much in response to my reading of that that book of adam jagajewski's called slight exaggeration a book uh, it's about all 
sort of anything and everything. And again, it has no introduction. And I wasn't writing it for Adam Zagajewski, who I who I barely knew and who is now dead. But I was certainly writing it in response to uh, that 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 book yeah. of his, which I'd found a great uh, inspiration and encouragement. Let's say. And, the, and there's this paradox, I suppose, uh, from, from an outsider's point of view, that you you write. It's often about the difficulty of writing and, and, and Out of Sheer Rage, your D.H. Lawrence book. You know, there's so much in there about the difficulty of writing the book that you're writing. Yet, you know, you've published, I think, 19 books now. Is there a fundamental work ethic that always prevails? Uh, do you know, there isn't a work ethic because um, uh, my parents had a considerable sort of work ethic and uh you know when i discovered that uh wow i can uh, i can just uh, uh, you know after i'd left oxford and i realized oh my god i can sign on the dole that seemed infinitely preferable to me to to working hmm. so i mean in in a way i've rejected that but i believe absolutely that you you know you one is happier if if one is working so I, it's not so much a work ethic as a a recognition of what what has made life fulfilling and rewarding for me and i guess the other thing is since i mentioned about university you know the whole writing life for me has been a pretty direct continuation of the life i led at university and i've remained in some ways just this perpetual uh, student and the the writing life has gone hand in hand with this project of um you know self-funded continuing self-education i guess well, I was I was thinking recently about how there's a difference between not liking being bored because nobody really likes being bored and having an actual sort of active intolerance for it, like that it that it that it sort of really does, you know, it, it, you have no capacity for it. And I wonder whether a lot of your choices in in writing and in life, and like you say, they you know obviously very closely intertwined, are explained by that that you just sort of you just drives you mad otherwise. Yeah, I think so, and I have such a. I mean, as a in my as my writing life has gone on, I've become, you know, increasingly impatient with having to do the boring bits. And again, you know, it's something that came to me quite early that I realised with, you know, with when I was writing the the First World War uh, book, I realised there's so many books about the First World War. I don't really have to do and write any of the stuff that would be boring to me because there's other books that will give you the background, the necessary background detail to the battles and military strategy and all this kind of stuff. So I realized I became very confident quite early on in not doing the stuff that bored me. Mm. And now I found that sort of the business of conveying any kind of information has become sort of tiresome to me, which I think is one of the reasons I do hardly any reviewing now, because that particular aspect of reviewing, whereby you've got to either do a sort of synoptic account of the thesis of the book, or if it, it's a novel, you've got to, uh, you know, convey something about the um, the plot, as it were. I've just become sort of too impatient to 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 do that. So I guess the the thing is to if you can manage to turn all of your weaknesses such as uh, propensity for boredom or impatience or whatever if you can manage to turn them into some kind of strength then that's a, that's a that's a very happy outcome although it is necessarily a precarious strategy which is not going to um uh, which is not always going to work 
Um, I know that Rafael Nadal just became the oldest winner of the French Open. Yeah. Um, was that was that one of those things where you, where you just think, damn, if I hadn't, uh, if the if you know if the deadline was a little later, this would have been a hell of a bit for the book. Uh, or uh, you know, I could have called it the last days of Rafael Nadal. Exactly, capitalise on the moment. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to that loser Roger Federer. <laughs> um, do you know, uh, there was quite a lot of last minute updating of things as kind of you know uh, things changed, and then after a certain point, I just uh, you know I just sort of let it go, and it was, I think. Uh, I think what I did, the last change I could make was to update things whereby, you know, they, the three of them had gone from having 20 slams each and it had changed to, uh, you know, Nadal having 21. But, uh, yeah, um, I mean, it was sort of complete. I don't feel any great sort of dissatisfaction over over these recent uh, events. It was just weird that it happened just after I'd finished your book and the, yeah. the Guardian report basically said how angry Nadal always was about getting older and not being able to do certain things. And he was probably, he wasn't one of those people that kind of accepts it. He was just furious. Ah, His yeah, body couldn't right. do certain things. And it really chimed with what I'd been reading. Yeah, it's funny though, isn't it? Because if you think of Roger Federer, who looks like, you know, even when he was getting on, he seemed to really enjoy every aspect of tennis. He even came to be very gracious about losing. Then Nadal, of course, has kept, you know, that warrior spirit that you talk about, but still seemed to enjoy what he was doing. And that was such a contrast to me with, uh, you know, Murray's comeback with this kind of thing of his kind of... uh, you know, he always so often seemed that this was, uh, I mean, he seemed to genuinely sort of raging against the dying of the light. So he seemed the much more, the least serene, let's say, of, 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 the, of the three. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Jeff Dyer. Oh, thank you so much, Dorian. It's an absolute, absolute pleasure. The Last Days of Roger Federer is published by Canongate. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend, sharing it on social media or reviewing us on iTunes. Take care and see you soon. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me Angela Barnes wherever you get your podcasts The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky the producers were Yelena Sofonievich Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Alina Ganatra the lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.